Welcome back. I'm here today with Eric Ball, and Eric, welcome to today's show. Thanks, Alan. So you've been involved in a lot of ventures. I know currently you're involved in a venture fund, but for the listeners here, I'd like you to walk us through your career path, which is very unique. Well, sure. I've, uh, I've covered a fair amount of uh, territory. I started life as an academic. Um, I uh, went to grad school to study economics, um, did uh, all, all the PhD coursework at uh, University of Rochester, and then later got my doctorate at the Peter Drucker School uh, down near Los Angeles, and decided that uh, I really enjoyed the teaching, but I didn't want to make a career out of research, and I transitioned into working for big companies, starting with AT&T in uh, 1988. Um, I spent five years in different finance roles at AT&T, uh, uh, and then uh, a Four years at, uh, five years actually at Avery Dennison in Pasadena and England, uh, and a couple of years at Cisco Systems, which brought me up here to the Valley in 1999. Uh, four years at Flextronics in San Jose, and then 11 years at Oracle from 2005 to 2015, uh, serving as the senior vice president and treasurer at Oracle, which was a really exciting role and kind of the cornerstone of my career. Uh, I spent a year at a startup. Uh, after that, a C3 IoT run by Tom Siebel, and then uh, last year uh, moved to uh, launch my own venture capital firm. So I've kind of moved from academic economist to big company to small company to venture investor uh, over a course of uh, uh, three decades. A breath, good breadth of experience, and along the way you wrote a book. I did. Uh, in 2012, I published a book uh, here in the U.S. Uh, that was republished in Japanese last year. Um, and the, the motivation behind the book was to integrate my academic training with my corporate experience, with the idea being that there's a lot of research done at business schools, which is not always relevant to practicing executives, but there's a f decent fraction that is relevant. And my goal was to distill that fraction of academic research that I thought could help people in their day jobs and, and highlight and expose people to that. So uh, I co-authored with a friend of mine, Joe LaPuma, out of Boston University, uh, a, a summary of academic research that we think could be uh, helpful for executives. So this is called Unlocking the Ivory Tower. And, uh what is the ivory tower? Well, the, the idea is that, uh, is that the ivory tower is the academy, which, uh, which studies a lot of behavior uh, and occasionally uh, you know, uh, garners insights that, that actually can affect uh, the real world. Uh, not, not all the time, but uh, some percentage of the time. And uh, I think some of the research is underappreciated in terms of how it can uh, inform uh, management thinking. So recently, the the, the the jump into venture capital it's it's a crowded market. Uh, a lot of people already playing in the market, but uh, but how are you finding the where we're at with the markets today and the, the the state of business in Silicon Valley? Well, I think business is strong in Silicon Valley, um, and I think that uh, the state of venture is strong. Uh, there, there are some interesting dynamics going on in venture capital uh, in the last year or two. Uh, one is that you're seeing record amounts of venture capital being raised, um, but almost record low amounts being deployed. And as you see more companies taking a longer and longer time to exit and allowing themselves to grow larger and larger before going public or being acquired, 
uh, venture investors are responding by uh, assuming that any holding period will be longer. So they're, they're um, fundraising to gather more money, but they're being somewhat stingy about deploying that money. So it's, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. Um, I also see uh, a distinction between late-stage venture capital and early-stage venture capital, where I think that a lot of money is being deployed in late-stage venture capital for a couple of reasons, but one is that a lot of people who have been successful in venture are raising larger funds, and when they raise a larger fund, their minimum check size becomes higher, and that almost forces them into later-stage investments, because an early-stage investment, you might invest half a million or a million dollars, but if your minimum check size is 10 or 20 million, you're forced to invest in more mature companies. And what my partners, Dixon Dahl and Jack Crawford, and I believe is that that creates an opportunity for early stage venture investing. And so our fund is, is a, a modestly sized uh, fund that's going to be geared uh, more toward the early stage companies. Do you have any particular uh, markets that you're going to be focusing in on? We're not uh, sector-specific. It's somewhat fashionable now to have uh, sector-specific venture funds. Um, and we are not sector-specific for, for two reasons. One is that we think a lot of the firms that have created outlying returns um, have created new categories. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I have, I have the pitch deck that Uber used 10 years ago um, trying to raise money and struggling to raise money because people said, well, why would you use the Internet to order a taxi? Um, and, and now every major venture firm has a digital mobility category. And so in, in a sense, I think that a lot of venture capitalists are fighting the last war. Um, and, and, and that's why we don't want to necessarily uh, drive toward uh, a single sector. Uh, another reason is that we think that a lot of existing technologies today um, lend themselves toward uses in multiple sectors uh, from birth rather than starting in one and then moving to adjacent sectors, we think that the IoT, cloud, SaaS-based technologies lend themselves toward applications in different sectors from the beginning. And so that's uh, one of the filters that we use when we evaluate uh, companies that we invest in is whether it, it might have applications across sectors. I'm busy here today with Eric Ball. And Eric, uh, we need to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Grandpa, can we do chemistry? Papa, Daddy. Grandpa, let's do something fun. We'll help you stay organized so you can focus on what really matters in life. Give us a call today and see how we can help you start saving taxes. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm busy here today with Eric Ball. And Eric, in the first segment, we, we ended up by talking about uh, Impact Ventures and, and this new fund that you became associated with. And uh, when, when you're looking at companies uh, to invest or partner with, uh, what's your process? Well, uh, I, I think that there's a process around evaluating the team and a process around evaluating the business. And, and there's a saying uh, in venture that uh, you, you don't invest in a product, you invest in a, in a business. And so it's not just about somebody who's invented a product because that's not a sufficient reason to form a company. Uh, that's, that, that can 
be built on to form a company. So it's really it's really in two directions around around the humans uh, that are at the core of the business and around the business itself. Um, I think that in terms of the business itself, uh, it's attractive to have uh, businesses that scale. Um, you know, one of the things that I took out of my time uh, initially, you know, I started my career at AT and T, and I spent much of my career at Oracle. And what both of those businesses had in common was um, a real ability to scale. Uh, you know, if you build a, a, a cable across the ocean, it costs a lot of money to do that, but the incremental cost of one more telephone call on that cable is zero. And if you write software, uh, once you write the software, if one person can use it, a billion people can use it at almost no additional cost. And so businesses that have that characteristic of being able to be used by a lot more people at only minimally more cost are very attractive uh, from an investment perspective. Um, and there's more to it than that, but that's, that's one, just one factor that we would look at. On the, um, on the personal side, you, you really want a team, uh, you, you want a CEO that you think can inspire people to lead them, um, not just uh, because people will think that uh, the business might be successful, but it's, it's really somebody that they respect enough to lead them into battle and, and, and just not take failure for an answer. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's really what you look for. Um, I, I think that the less sector-specific you are, the more, as an investor, you're betting on the team as opposed to, uh, as opposed to an investment thesis, which, which drives you solely toward uh, the, the, the tools or the products. Uh, but but we really look at, uh, at both, both the business and, and the management. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, discussion recently about artificial intelligence and moving. How, where would you say we're at in, in, in that process right now? We're still at the very early stage of... Oh, well, they, that's at, a, at an early stage. I mean, there are, there are some uh, luminaries here in the Valley who say that artificial intelligence will eventually take all of our jobs and we can drink margaritas in the bathtub. Uh, it, but uh, I think that, that that may happen, but that, that, that'll happen over some period of time. One of the four initial portfolio companies that we've invested in at Impact Venture Capital is uh, a company that's uh, making drone operation autonomous and, and sort of it's AI applied to the drone space and it's uh, displacing human security guards. Um, so they're, they're finding drones to be cheaper, uh, a cheaper way to ensure physical security of a perimeter than just hiring a bunch of security guards to walk around. So we're an active part of unemploying security guards, and I think that there are similar companies that are unemploying, you know, other, uh, other skills. Uh, uh, the self-driving cars are, are getting to the point where I think taxi drivers are an endangered species and pretty soon truck drivers uh, will be endangered as well. Over the course of time, all of our jobs uh, may, may be replaceable with artificial intelligence. Uh, but I think that the more uh, the more the job depends on uh, sort of uh, cognitive processing, the longer it will take. Um, and so I, I think it'll sort of move up the ladder from uh, you, you know vocational jobs to to uh, highly uh, analytical jobs. But I. I think very few jobs will ultimately be safe. You know the uh, you know when we look at the the, the Internet of Things and and uh, 
the, the whole landscape of this industry, it seems like AI is really, you know, hitting all aspects of it. Then. Well, yeah, it, it is, and I mean, AI is such a broad term that it encompasses. People can use that term to mean a lot of different things, but but broadly speaking, um, a, a lot of routine tasks, and I think increasingly more nuanced tasks will will be uh, done better uh, by computers. And uh, and and you're even you're seeing that in a lot of fields. I mean, you're seeing uh, uh, robot robot surgery, uh, where even a, a skill as advanced as a, a surgeon uh, can be done, at least in part improved on with the use of, uh, of AI and, and robotic tools. Um, and that, that's what I meant by nobody is ultimately safe. Well, Eric, I need to take another break. And uh, when we get back, I want to go back into the book, Unlocking the Ivory Tower. Great. We'll be right back after these messages. can't take your wealth with you, spend time with your family. Welcome back. I've been visiting here today with Eric Ball. And uh, Eric, in this segment, I want to talk about uh, your new book, Unlocking the Ivory Tower. And um, first of all, the inspiration for this book was? Well, I, I'm somebody who is straddled a couple of different worlds. I, uh, when I was uh, in graduate school studying economics and finance, I decided that I was never going to be a Nobel Prize winner uh, in, in theory, that I enjoyed uh, learning the material, but, uh, but I wasn't passionate about the, the research as much. Um, and, you know, as uh, an executive, I rose through the ranks, but, uh, you know, I decided I, I wasn't going to become CEO of General Electric either. Um, but where I thought uh, I might be unusual was that I had spent some amount of time in both environments, and I was struck by how little the environments communicate with each other. Um, and my, my co-author, Joe LaPuma, uh, had a similar background. He'd actually started as a uh, consultant for 25 years and then become an academic later in his career. And we both lamented that academics often study problems that no one else thinks are interesting, um, and when they do study problems that are very applicable or relevant, uh, a lot of executives don't believe that somebody in a business school could possibly understand the challenges they face, and so they may not always be receptive toward research, which actually helps solve problems that they face every day. So we decided that we would be sort of uh, the UN interpreters where we would try to uh, create a bridge between the, these two worlds that don't spend a lot of time in contact with each other. Is management of, of people instinctive or is that something that is typically acquired through experience? Oh, I, I think that there are certain natural talents uh, that, that can help in the sense that, you know, if, if you want to be a professional baseball player, it's good to just have good hand-eye coordination and athletic skills. In the same way, if you want to be an effective manager, it's good to uh, have a comfort in speaking uh, clearly and, and communicating well. But for the most part, I think both uh, management and leadership are more acquired 
uh, than born. I don't, I don't really believe in the born leader or the born communicator. I mean, these are skills like anything else that improve with practice. And I think that, uh, you know, the, one of the uh, points in the book, uh, there's some research which talks about, you know, management is dealing with complexity and leadership is about dealing with change. Uh, and both improve with practice. Uh, so I, I, I'm definitely more in the, in the mold that leaders are, are made than that they are born. What are some of the common mistakes that uh, managers will often make? Well, you know, that could be a long list because uh, uh, I, I think each manager uh, invents new mistakes uh, to, to be made. But I think there, there are some common mistakes uh, or some myths that uh, research shows aren't necessarily true. One I think institutionalized misperception is that the way to motivate people is uh, by compensation. And uh, there's a whole set of research in psychology. This is usually in psychology departments more than business schools. But there's research that shows that compensation is a small factor in the motivation for an employee. Um, on the one hand, it's not absolute compensation that matters. It's relative compensation. Um, so people tend to seem less focused on how much they make in an absolute sense than on how much they make relative to the uh, man or woman who sits next to them. And, uh, you know, if, if they get a 2% raise but the person next to them gets a 3% raise, that 2% raise wasn't motivating. Um, so uh, people are psychologically prone to compare themselves to the people nearest to them, not, not in an absolute sense. And I think that's underappreciated. Uh, but further than that, the research shows that people are highly motivated by uh, a desire to do well and be recognized for their work. And that uh, when, when studies of re retention and attrition happen, uh, the, the role of, of a manager in recognizing and acknowledging work and in creating a sense of, of shared purpose and mission often is empirically shown, this isn't just ideology, it's empirically shown to have a bigger impact on uh, retention rates than simply how much somebody gets paid. What management practices today do you feel are critical in order for young companies to succeed? Oh, um, I think that practices around agility um, are particularly uh, key. and. And that, that covers a, a wide amount of ground, but uh, I, I think that, you know, small companies aren't going to be able to compete with big companies in terms of resources, uh, talent bench, um, but they, they can shift more rapidly. And that's why a lot of the more successful companies uh, don't fear the Fortune 500 competitors as much as they fear, uh, you know, three smart young people in a garage somewhere. Um, because you can turn a PT boat faster than you can turn an aircraft carrier. And, and, and I think that's borne out with the rise and fall of, of some of the local companies here in the Valley. Um, I think, you know, HP had some difficulty changing direction and, and had a couple of rough years as a result. Um, there are other companies, uh, Google had, and Oracle, I would put out as examples of companies that have remained relatively agile despite growing large. Um, and so your question was about what, what uh, people at young companies should be doing, and I think um, that agility is, is, the, is the primary word that I, that I would uh, bring to mind for that. 
You know, you spent, uh, I'm going to jump over to your career at Oracle, you spent a number of years as senior vice president there. And what changes did you see in the landscape of the, uh, the, the whole tech industry during the tenure? Um, well, that, uh, you know, the, the, so many changes, and I, I'm sure that, that what I saw most closely was only a tip of the iceberg. Um, but uh, but I, I was there for some changes. I, you know, Oracle, as well as many tech companies, had not initially been acquisitive. In fact, uh, Larry Ellison used to say in the 90s, um, you know, we... We don't uh, we don't buy good products. We make them, um, and and Oracle was not acquisitive, but uh, Larry Ellison had, uh, you know, he has the uh, uh, the ability uh, and the strength of of taking in new data and altering his course as a result, and I think he had fundamental insights around the scalability of software and the fact that uh, building a larger revenue base. Um, allowed you to spread an R&D budget over a larger and larger base, which created a, a positive reinforcing loop. And around the time I joined Oracle, Oracle became highly acquisitive, uh, one of the most acquisitive firms in technology and one of the most acquisitive firms in the world, and uh, proved to be very effective at that. Um, so that was one change um, that I observed. And then I ended up participating in that change because in order to be acquisitive, Oracle needed to borrow money um, and my job in finance was to uh, manage that process of doing very large bond deals. Uh, I, my team borrowed $52 billion in my 11 years it's at Oracle. not a small number. Uh, no, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't. And um, we had, uh, you know, we, we borrowed the money, but part of the motivation for borrowing money was uh, to, to fuel the M&A uh, as well as some other uses of cash. Oracle actually had cash offshore that wasn't terribly tax efficient to spend onshore. So we managed investments with offshore cash. We borrowed money onshore. And um, before we did that, uh, before our first bond deal in 2006, no cash-rich tech company had ever borrowed money because the prevailing wisdom had been that in tech, the business is risky, so you have to offset a riskier business model with a more conservative financial profile and therefore not borrow money. And Oracle... We were the first of the big tech companies to start borrowing money in a serious way. And after we did that, you saw Cisco do the same thing. Um, you saw uh, um, uh, Apple uh, come into the debt markets, and it became much more uh, common and acceptable for uh, big uh, tech companies to borrow money and to, to use uh, at least some of that money for M&A. I've been visiting here today with Eric Ball, and uh, Eric, we're out of time today. But before we go, I'd like to ask if uh, companies interested in, in seeking the, to get to know Impact better, how would they go about contacting you guys? Well, we have uh, three general partners at Impact. Um, myself, uh, uh, Dixon Dahl, who is a, really an icon in the Valley. Um, and uh, you know, Dixon was the uh, founder of Dahl Capital Management, which was later renamed DCM Ventures um, uh, with, a, with a sterling career. Uh, and Jack Crawford, uh, 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 our third partner, who went through the Kaufman Fellows Program with me in 2011, and I've had the chance to invest with both Jack and Dixon for years prior to the formation of Impact. And our email addresses are all very simple. It's eric at impactvc.com, dixon at impactvc.com, jack at impactvc.com. 
Uh, we welcome the chance to hear from entrepreneurs. Uh, we've invested in four companies in 2017 that we're very excited about. Uh, a high-performance computing company in, uh, in Santa Clara, Cornami. The drone company I referenced earlier uh, in Mountain View called Nightingale Security. A fraud detection software company in the Sacramento area called Pondera. And um, a mobile-to-mobile -mobile IoT company in Oakland called GlobeTouch. We're excited about those four investments we've made in 2017. We have many uh, candidates in 2018, but we're always happy to, uh, uh, to hear more. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you being on today's show. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Eric Ball. And over the break, uh, we began talking about the Stanford prison study. And I thought it'd be good to have Eric back to, to maybe talk about the study and the, and, and the results of what this, uh, you know, why it was put out and, and the results of the study. Well, I, I think the, the Stanford prison experiment, experiment was a, uh, an example of a broader issue around organizational culture. And, and organizational culture is sort of what, uh, what culture is to an organization is what a personality is to an individual. It's, it's the set of implicit assumptions that aren't always explicitly described, but motivate behavior within an organization. And, um, and in trying to understand behavior, we, we float into the realm of psychology. And I think one of the most powerful pieces of research in the, in the area of psychology was the Stanford Prison Experiment. In 1971, Philip Zimbardo at Stanford brought together a group of undergraduates and conducted an experiment where they were randomly sorted into a group called prisoners and a group called guards. And they were thrown together uh, for a week um, to role play. And what the, the experiment discovered is that very quickly the people who'd been randomly assigned as guards started behaving quite cruelly and even sadistically toward the people who'd been assigned as prisoners. And, and it got so uh, egregious that uh, after about five days, the, uh, the experiment had to be stopped because the, the prisoners were being abused um, physically and psychologically mm. by the guards. And what this study revealed is that um, uh, people perceive that personality drives behavior but empirically, it appears that situations drive behavior um, and that the, the culture that you put in place and the situations that you put people in can create um, behavior that, uh, that can be, uh, you know, unintended. Um, you know, some anthropologists in different research looked at Silicon Valley. They brought in anthropologists who were used to looking at, like, you know, the primitive people of Borneo and other cultures. But what they discovered is that if you look at the textbook definition of a cult, that a lot of Silicon Valley startups, even larger companies, fit that definition. You have a culture that involves young people with a strong sense of shared mission and, and affiliation, uh, not sleeping enough, um, and, uh, and spending most of their time with each other. Um, and that you know, in some cases, that's, that's how you define a cult. That's also how you define a very successful startup. And, and so some of this research in psychology would suggest that you should be very conscious about what culture you're creating and what situations you're putting people in because uh, situations can have that, that uh, effect on behavior in ways that you might intend but also in ways that you might not intend. 
interesting. So it speaks to the fact how important culture is. Yeah, culture and, and, and structure, the, the structure of organizations and uh, decision making and, and the relative power roles that, that, that people have. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you being here on today's show, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you with us. And uh, for the listeners out there, Eric, again, he's uh, one of the co-founders of Impact Ventures. Uh, they, uh, they launched this last year. They're focusing on the early stage companies. And uh, for individuals wanting to reach out, you can contact Eric at impactventuresvc.com. Eric at impactvc.com. Eric yeah. at impactvc.com. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on American Dreams and join us next week right here on this station.